Well, Frank was the sort of gentleman who would never hurt a fly. I mean, he was kind, he was generous, friendly. I mean, he knew no enemies. But one day, while he was traveling cross-country, he stopped at a roadside diner uh, to enjoy a cup of coffee and a sandwich. Being generally naive and always believing the best about others, Frank did not give much thought to the fact that uh, the part of town he had stopped in was not the safest place for out-of-towners. As he was sitting at the counter eating his lunch and making small talk with the waitress, a gang of motorcycle hoodlums pulled into the diner parking lot, engines roaring, making quite a show of themselves. Everyone in the diner looked hesitatingly at the ruffians as they swaggered through the door, looking like they had come straight from the streets of East L.A. Frank, however, paid no attention. He went on blissfully enjoying his lunch, and that seemed to annoy the gangsters, so they began bullying Frank. They taunted him, they called him names, tossed his hat off the counter, they pushed him off his stool, dumped his sandwich on the floor. All the while, Frank remained unprovoked. He calmly paid his bill, picked up his hat, walked out of the diet. Well, at that point, the leader of the gang, feeling somewhat surprised and maybe even a little embarrassed that he'd been unable to provoke Frank into a fight, turned to the waitress and said loudly so everyone in the diner could hear him, Huh, that fella sure wasn't much of a man, now was he? To which the waitress responded as she looked out the front window of the diner, uh, he must not be much of a driver either. He just ran over six Harleys with his Oldsmobile Cutlass. You ever been there? Wish you could just get revenge and get away with it, you know? How do you respond to your enemies? How do you respond to your enemies? You know, we've been in Nehemiah now just to give you a quick uh, refresher of where we've been. The year is 445 B.C., so 400 roughly years before Christ. Uh, the children of Israel had begun returning to their homeland after being in exile in Babylon. This was the third return, and although the temple uh, construction had begun, it wasn't finished, and the, particularly the gates and the, the walls around Jerusalem were in disrepair, and God laid it on Nehemiah's heart to lead a rebuilding project to get the city fortified and rebuild uh, those walls. And last time, we were in chapter 4 also, and we looked at what to expect from our enemies. But this morning, I want to go back to that same chapter and, and, and take a look at how Nehemiah responded. I want to identify some principles for dealing with our enemies. So I want to read just the second half of this uh, chapter, the last few verses anyway, uh, just for some context, and then we're going to pull out five principles as we walk through the text uh, together. But if you want to follow along, I'm in Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. The leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction, the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. The one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, 
The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. Well, how do we respond when the enemies attack? We, we looked at some examples last week of what to expect from enemies. Uh, we talked about how enemies are a reality. And I don't know where everyone's coming from in this place, but I can assure you in a group this size, there are going to be people that are facing enemy attacks. That could be serious enemy attacks from the enemy himself, spiritual warfare from Satan. It could also be just life crises. It could also be real uh, physical enemies, people that don't like. Remember one of the takeaways last week was not everybody's going to like you, right? Uh, and that's just a fact of life. But how do we respond? Well, the first thing we see in Nehemiah is pray. We've come back to this again and again and again. Uh, Nehemiah always took the first step of prayer whenever he was facing a crisis. And so as we face enemies today, we need to not only rely on intelligence, planning, or luck to overcome the enemy, we need to pray. And, you know, what I have found as I was thinking about this is it's, it's often more, most difficult to think about hitting our knees and going to the Lord in prayer when we're facing an enemy than it is other types of crises. In other words, when we have a financial crisis, a health crisis, a relationship issue, we, we tend, if we, we're walking in, in faith and walking spiritually mature, we'd understand the importance of pray, pray without ceasing, but take everything to the Lord in prayer. But often when we face an enemy attack, because usually they're unexpected, our visceral response is to defend ourselves kind of like Frank did in the night, right, uh, rather than pray. And it's just interesting to me that Nehemiah saturated this project in prayer even after the enemies had plotted against him. Remember last week we looked at how, nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, set a watch against him day and night. We talked about how prayer and also vigilance are both important. And then we talked last week about the imprecatory prayer. Remember that, or not last week, I guess it was last time, or last message in this series. Uh, imprecatory prayer, that's when you pray and ask God to bring down judgment on your enemies. Just let them have it. Protect me, God, from these uh, enemies. And I'm going to say more about that kind of prayer here in just a moment. But, you know, the New Testament reminds us, the, the James, the Lord's brother, said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Uh, we need wisdom more than any other time when we're facing enemy attacks. How do you respond? Uh, obviously, we looked at some principles last week. If you're facing a physical attack, it's perfectly normal to defend yourselves, and we see that with Nehemiah. They were loaded to the hilt with weapons. They were not going to just sit back and be you know, martyred. They were going to fight and defend life and defend their families and things like that, and we should too. Uh, but sometimes it's more subtle than that. How should you respond when enemies spread false rumors or attack uh, with verbal abuse or steal something from you or 
plot your demise. How do you respond? That's where God's wisdom comes in, and you get that through prayer. Remember, Paul said, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Everything means when the enemy attacks. Uh, and by the way, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We need peace, especially when the enemy attacks. Because when you're facing an attack, it's anything but peaceful. It's turmoil. It's chaos. It's danger. It's fear. It's all of those things. And so more than anything else, we need to remember step number one is to pray. And then even in the midst of a project like what Nehemiah and the children of Israel were doing or whatever you're facing, you can still go through your day knowing you've got enemies. Believe me, we people think I'm paranoid because I've, I've been talking about the Luciferian conspiracy and stuff for so long that, you know, we've got enemies, you know, no question. We've had, plus, we take a stand for the gospel clearly, accurately, and urgently, and Satan hates that. So we've had our share of enemies. I, you know, I'm so paranoid, I think the people in front of me are following me, but uh, it's, it's true. I mean, uh, we, uh, but, but, uh, but uh, somehow, and I'm not very good at this, but when we, we have the right heart attitude and follow the admonition of prayer, in the midst of it, I can be peaceful, you know. Uh, when I'm not at peace, it's when I get my eyes off the door. So I want to talk, for before we leave this first point of pray, a little bit more about the idea of imprecatory prayers. Because uh, from the Not By Works audience, I got several questions. In fact, I dealt with one of them in our Q&A recently on our podcast about how to reconcile Jesus' statement here that you see on the screen from the Sermon on the Mount of loving your enemies with the concept of imprecatory prayers that we see in the book of Psalms and in Nehemiah and Daniel and other places as well. How can you fulfill both exhortations? On the one hand, loving your enemies, blessing those who curse you, doing good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, as Jesus said. And yet at the same time, pray to God Almighty that he'll rain down hellfire and brimstone on them and get them and, and, and bring vengeance on them. It seems like those at face value might be contradictory. Well, of course, Scripture never contradicts itself. We always interpret Scripture in light of Scripture and look for them to resolve themselves into perfect unity, and they do. The issue comes down to understanding what the difference between love and defense. So you, love is an attitude. We're called to love everyone. We're called to love God, to love our neighbors ourselves, to love our enemies. Love is having the right attitude toward your enemies. So you can... You can love your enemies while still defending yourself from their attacks at the same time. We pray for them. We want them to come to faith. We want them to repent, change their mind, recognize that they need a Savior and become a Christian. How great would that be? If your worst enemy, think of who that is in your life right now, I mean, earthly enemy. How great would it be if that person came to faith in Christ, became a brother or sister in Christ, or if they're already a Christian, because a lot of times our enemies are Christians, I'm sad to say. Winnie and I have, have seen time and again that some of the worst attacks we've faced have been from Christians, believe it or not. Uh, and if they're a Christian, how great would it be if they were to, to repent and get right with the Lord and really become, you know, to reconcile and really stop attacking? Wouldn't that be awesome? We want to pray for them. But at the same time, you know, there's nothing wrong with when people are harming you and harming your family, asking God to intervene. Remember, the, the whole point of imprecatory prayer is not for you to get what you want. See, in our flesh, when we face an enemy, we want to act like Frank. We want to just, you know, show them what they've got coming and just 
run over their bikes and then get out of Dodge, right? I hope he ran over them enough that they wouldn't start, because I have a feeling if they tracked him down on their bikes, it wasn't going to be pretty. But with, that's our fleshly response. When we're attacked, we want to we get revenge. And a precatory prayer is simply asking God to do what God said he would do. It has nothing to do with you. It's vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Lord, you've said vengeance is yours. These people are attacking your work by attacking your child, me, Nehemiah's case, Nehemiah and the people of Israel. Go get them. That's what we want you to do, God. Go get them. In the meantime, we can still pray for them. We still love them in the Lord. Love is not conditional. Agape love in, Christ in, in Christianity is unconditional love. But uh, they're not mutually exclusive. You can pray in precatory prayers, and you can also love your enemies. You know, I never will forget, I think I've shared this story before, but I was at a conference in Dallas one time, and uh, one of the keynotes was uh, Jerry Falwell. Now, say what you want about Jerry Falwell. I, I've not, not always been pleased with some of the things that he did when he was alive, but he certainly didn't mince words. And so we were at the banquet portion of the conference, and he was to be the keynote speaker. But this was right after 9-11, and he was a frequent guest on major talking head news shows like Fox News and MSNBC and CNN. And so before, the, before he came on to speak, while the rest of us in this big banquet hotel room were eating, he was out in the lobby doing a live feed with one of these television shows. And so when he came in to speak, he related the story of the brief, you know, three or four minute time that he was being interviewed. And he said, he was, he said this is, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said that he was kind of the token evangelical on the, on the program, and they were talking about Osama bin Laden, and they said, uh, uh, you know, that uh, they said, uh, Dr. Falwell, I imagine that uh, as a Christian, you think that even someone like uh, Osama bin Laden could be forgiven and find redemption. And Jerry Falwell said, I told him, I looked right in the camera, and I told him, absolutely. If I got the chance to meet uh, Osama bin Laden, I'd share the gospel with him, I'd lead him to faith in Christ, and then I'd shoot him. So, <laughs> typical, typical Falwell, you know, his just telling it like it is. But uh, I always think of that when I think about this balance between imprecatory prayers and loving your enemies, right? You know, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. So, step number one when facing an enemy is pray. We see that a lot all throughout Nehemiah. We're going to come back to prayer again and again. The second step is persevere. And I'm going to spend most of our time this morning on the second point. Uh, and then we'll get to the final three points briefly at the end. But never let the enemy win by giving up. When you're facing an enemy, you have got to persevere, whatever it takes. And that's what we saw in the account last week that we read, and we see it again this week. They had a, the people had a mind to work. They were not lazy. They were not wimps. They were not whiners. They did not you know, give up or throw in the towel. They did what needed to be done. They were willing to make sacrifices and endure discomfort in order to finish the work that God had given them to do. I think sometimes the reason enemy attacks seem so painful because we don't really, we're not calibrated to our true north and really knowing what our purpose is and what we're supposed to be doing. When you have a clear, foreseeable vision, a mental picture of the future of where you're headed, what God's purpose in your life is, you know, the, the, the enemy attacks don't affect you as much. Because you're determined, and it's much easier to persevere when you keep your eyes fixed on the tax, task at hand. The passage we read this morning, it says, we labored in the work. See, you know, work is not supposed to be easy, right? After the fall, that's when Adam, you know, 
had the sweat of his brow and it was, you know, all, all of that. It was, it was not that way before the fall. But once sin entered the equation, I worked as hard. But Adam had a job before the fall. He was to tend the garden. He was to name the animals, those kinds of things. But it was fun. Today, if you're walking by faith and living for the Lord, your job can also be fun. You know, I'm, I'm blessed beyond measure. For 30-plus years, I've gotten to do what I love doing most, which is teach and preach the Word of God and make my living from the gospel. I'm blessed. But it doesn't matter what your job is. You can still enjoy it, even though it's not always easy. Certainly, ministry is not always easy. But these people were facing intense attacks, and they persevered. They persevered. Uh, I'm reminded of Hebrews, uh, another group of Christians uh, 400 years later who were facing intense persecution, almost 500 years later, actually. Uh, In the the late 60s A.D., the church had been around about 30 years. Nero had risen to the Roman emperor status, and he was uh, turning on the Christians. At first he started out okay, but then he started getting crazy and really persecuting Christians, burning them at the stake. So it's late 60s A.D., and many Christians were contemplating abandoning the faith, giving up, throwing in the towel. We can't take this anymore. And the writer of Hebrews comes along and challenges them to keep on keeping on. Don't cast away your faith. Don't cast away your confidence. And he appeals to the ultimate example of perseverance in Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is pointing back to chapter 11 in Hebrews, where he's just given a whole list of great men and women of faith from the Old Testament who continued steadfastly to trust God in the face of difficult circumstances. He says, in light of those, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he uses a metaphor here uh, for the Christian life of the race. And then he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So Jesus and his example is kind of like the finish line. Kind of like that ribbon that you hope when you cross the finish line, uh, you know, to be the first one if you win the race. Um, and Jesus, of course, we begin our Christian life by faith in Jesus, and we live our entire Christian life, which is like a race, by trusting in Jesus. So we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You talk about enemies. You talk about persecution. Nothing greater than what he faced. Scourged, spat upon, stabbed with a sword, crowned with thorns, crucified on a cross. Of course, he was laid in a borrowed tomb and rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. But he's the consummate example of one who persevered, and he should be our example. He despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So this is a, a great passage that speaks of our sanctification, our spiritual growth process. Once we receive the free gift of eternal life, how should we live out our lives? And he calls it a race. And I want you to notice that word race. It's a very key word in this passage. And in you know, the Bible wasn't written in English, right? So it's a translation. In English, you might see that word race. And if you're like me, you think, oh, I, I know what a race is, right? It's, uh, you know, some of those fundraising, you know, 5K or 2K things where you can walk or push a stroller and there's little snack shacks every quarter mile with bottled water on ice. It's just for fun. It's a, it's a race, right? 
That's not at all what the word means in Greek. That word race in Greek is used six times, and it's the word agon. And it's where we get the English word agony. And it literally means struggle, fight. For example, Paul uses this same word in 1 Timothy 6 when he's talking to Timothy, and he says, fight the good fight. That's the noun, fight. That's agon, you see in yellow. Christian life is an agonizing race. It's an agonizing fight. In fact, in his second letter to Timothy, on his deathbed, right before he was martyred, Paul says of himself, I have fought the good agon, the good agonizing fight. I have finished the race. Different word for race, by the way. I have kept the faith. Agon, it's a fight. In his letter to the Thessalonians, he uses the same word and calls it a conflict. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Certainly Paul understood agonizing nature of this fight. So if we go back to Hebrews 12, the life that we live for the Lord is not some casual fun run. It is an agonizing fight. There may not be a snack shack at the next, around the next corner. There may not be someone handing you a bottle of water when you're really parched and really used to it. It's a fight. It's a battle. And the people of Nehemiah's day understood this. Now, as we talk about this concept in terms of the sanctification process today in the present church age, I can think of another metaphor that Paul used in 1 Corinthians. He said, do you not know that those who run in a race, again, a different word for race here, it's the typical word for race, stadion, meaning a competition like in an amphitheater or Olympics or something, and he's using the, this race in this context as another metaphor to talk about preparing and disciplining your body and, and, and uh, getting ready for the big competition so that you'll win it. You want to you want to prepare to win it, right? You know, it's it's uh, something the Dallas Cowboys could take a few notes from, right? We got someone here from Dallas today coming in to visit us from the Holy Land. Thank you for for coming. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, they, they've apparently forgotten because it's been quite a long time. Uh, someone sent me a meme just the other day, not a meme, but a statistic that they copied and pasted from ESPN that showed the history of the Broncos versus the Cowboys. And the Broncos have won, they played 14 times, the Broncos have won nine, and the Cowboys have won five. So they, I said, thanks a lot for that encouragement. Uh, really encouraging ministry there to send me that uh, email. But, uh, yeah, the Cowboys have apparently forgotten how to prepare. When you prepare for a competition, you want to win. You want to win it, right? That's what Paul says. Don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And then he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I want to focus on this word disqualified. We talked about agon and the agonizing race of the Christian life. What is this word disqualified? Paul understood that the Christian life requires discipline, it requires perseverance, requires effort, and he did not want to fail the test. The word disqualified here is the word adakimas. Adakimas, it means to be disapproved or to fail the test. And it's a very key word in the New Testament epistles to describe our motivation every day for living the Christian life. Our eternal security is set. Nothing can change that. Our eternal destiny is not contingent upon how well we run the race. It's a free gift. You've received it by faith the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ and 
him alone as the only one who can save you based on his shed blood at Calvary. He adopts you into the family of God. You're born again in that instant. You become part of the family of God. You're saved. You pass from death to life, Jesus said. So nothing can change that. But nevertheless, as we go through life as a Christian, we're tested. Life is a great test. I mean, we, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Things are not always easy. Are you going to walk by faith? Are you going to trust God even when the enemy attacks? Or are you going to throw in the towel? And when you fail the test, that's adakimats. And, and here's a passage that is probably the one of the top five most misinterpreted passages in all of Scripture. And I bring it up because Paul uses that word adakimats. It's one we just talked about. It's used eight times in the New Testament. And he, he says this, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Adakimats. What's going on here? Most people read this verse and they say Paul is challenging his readers and us to look at our lives and make sure we're really a Christian. Better double check. Better do some examination. Make sure you're going to heaven. Not at all. That's the exact opposite of what he's saying. See, Jesus Christ dwells positionally and permanently in every believer from the moment you place your faith in him. But when we sin, when we walk in the flesh and not after the Spirit, as Paul describes there in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 and Colossians, he also talks about Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 6, there's this constant theme in the New Testament of sanctification, progressive spiritual growth, where there's this struggle between the old man and the new man. When we walk in the flesh, when we're not abiding in him, uh, we're, we're, that's what sin really is. Paul teaches that Jesus Christ is in us positionally, but he should be working in us unless we fail the test, unless we're not abiding in him and he in us. When we're not walking in faith, uh, we're, we're failing the test. So this verse is often mistakenly used to say, oh, you get you look at your life and, and you'll be assured of your salvation. Double check. Make sure you're really going to heaven. But Paul's not teaching that here at all. In fact, he never teaches that. In fact, nowhere in all of Scripture are we ever told to examine our behavior to determine whether or not we're really a Christian. Only told to look on the outside of ourselves at the empirical promise of Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish." Do you realize when we doubt our salvation, it's in essence like we're saying, Christ, you said you gave me eternal life, but I don't think you meant it. We're accusing Christ of having no integrity. Look, how much clearer can he say it? I give you eternal life and you shall never perish, John 10, 28. The moment you believe in me, you pass from death to life and shall never come into condemnation, John 5. John 3, 36, whoever believes in me uh, shall never come into wrath. You're a child of God. John 6, 47, the simplest statement of the gospel in all the Bible. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, period. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel. Now, if Jesus meant what he said he meant, then you never have to wonder. You don't have to wait till you die. Oh, am I going in? Boy, I hope so. I'm just really nervous. I, hope, I, can't, I don't know if I'm going to get in or not. No, you know right now. And to doubt your salvation is to question the promise of Christ. Paul was writing to the Corinthians to genuine believers. He's made that clear repeatedly throughout the letter. I could give you a whole list of references in the first 12 chapters to clearly taking for granted the fact that these are Christians. So he tells them to examine their works 
to gain assurance of their sanctification. Are you growing in the Lord? Are you walking by faith? Earlier he had said in chapter 5, walk in faith. Walk in faith. And so he says, how you doing? See, he says, are you living like a Christian? He does not say, are you a Christian? He knows they're Christians. He preached the gospel to them. That was third missionary to them. So, or the second missionary to them. So he's not saying, are you a Christian? He's saying, are you living like a Christian? One a commentator put it this way. After 12 chapters in which Paul takes their Christianity for granted, why in the world would he now be asking them to make sure they're really a Christian? Paul asked the Corinthian Christians to examine themselves, listen carefully, not because he doubted their salvation. He was absolutely sure of their salvation. He asked them to examine themselves because they were not living the Christian life. And he wanted them to notice it and pay attention so they could repent and start living the faith-filled Christian life. Examine yourselves. Are you passing the test? Or are you not passing the test? Disqualified. Our documents. You're not going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ for those times in our life when we walk by sight and not by faith. We live in the flesh. We take matters into our own hands. Get vengeance to those hoodlums that try to pick on us. Jesus said in the upper room, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. So positionally, again, Christ is in you. Nothing can change that. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But practically, when we walk away from the Lord, we are distancing ourselves from Him. We're breaking that fellowship. And, you know, you're, why would you want to break fellowship with the one who saved you? Now, interestingly, Going back to James, the Lord's brother, he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. By the way, the word temptation there means trials of any kind, not just sinful temptations or enticements. But whoever endures trials, remember at the beginning of chapter 1, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Same, same word. So blessed is the man who endures, for he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to all those who love him. See that word approved? Guess what that word is? It's the word Dokimos, without the A. So you put an A in front of a word to negate it. So like atheist, someone who believes there's no God. Theos is God, A, no God. Agnostic, A, gnosis, A, no, gnosis, knowledge, someone who denies there's, that you can know there's a God. Ah, dokimos means you failed the test. Dokimos means you've been examined and approved. You've passed the test. There's no, ne there's no A, there's no negative in front of it. And so James, the Lord's brother, is saying, when you endure the trials, such as an enemy attack, when you persevere, which is what we're talking about, you pass the test, and you will be rewarded richly. When will that reward come? At the judgment seat of Christ, which Paul had already mentioned in this same letter when he told them to examine themselves. Examine yourselves in light of the judgment seat of Christ, not in light of heaven or hell. We never need to examine ourselves to know if we're going to heaven. If you've trusted Christ, now if you've never trusted Christ, you absolutely need to trust in Christ today. That's the one and only way to get to heaven. 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life on faith alone. I couldn't be more clear. The gospel is so simple a child can understand. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. You can say it in 10 words or less. Nothing complicated about the gospel. Satan's done a good job of making it complicated, convincing people they have to turn their life around, Repent of all their sins, make a commitment, pledge, promise, make Christ Lord of their life, 
you know, clean up to take a bath. They've got to pro make a contract with God. I promise never to do this. I'll promise to do that. That's not the gospel at all. The gospel is so simple. Nothing in my hand I bring simply the cross I cling. Christ died for your sins and rose then. Are you going to trust in him to pay your penalty or not? So that's not what we're examining ourselves about. Unless you haven't trusted him, then, of course, you need to do that. As a believer, we examine ourselves in light of the fact that we're going to give an account for our life of earthly service, and we will either pass the test or not. If we pass the test, we'll be rewarded, like James talks about with crowns. If we don't pass the test, we won't be rewarded. So the second point here, and I know we spend a lot of time on it, but it's critical because there's a lot of bad teaching out there about perseverance. So it's a real false doctrine. People will t convince you that you've got to persevere in good works to really get into heaven. If you ever abandon the faith or give up or throw in the towel, you're going to hell. Thank God my eternal destiny is not based upon my ability to hang on to God. It's based upon the empirical promise of Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you'll never perish. So sadly, Christianity after 2,000 years, is the highways of Christianity are littered with people who threw in the towel. As we read in Hebrews, they, they forsake the assembling of themselves together. They, they give up. I get emails quite often from not by works listeners who, who are concerned because they have adult children that were raised in a Christian family and trusted Christ at a young age and they've walked away from the faith. And they've been told by so many false teachers out there that, oh, your kids are probably not saved. Can't possibly be saved. Look what they're doing. How can they be saved if they abandon the faith? Listen, Paul answers that very question, 2 Timothy 2. He says, even if we get to the point where we're faithless, by the way, that's another one of those negators, the A in front of the word. Pistis is the word faith. Opistis means no faith. He says, even if we are opistis, we have no faith at all, we've abandoned the faith, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You're a child of God. Simple spiritual DNA test will prove that. You can deny the Lord all you want. It doesn't change your identity in Christ. Now, it comes with serious consequences, not the least of which is loss of rewards when you fail the test. It comes with practical consequences. Sin is a deadly killer. Take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. That's what my home church pastor used to say. That's what sin will do. So sin is, is, is awful. There are serious consequences for sin in the life of a believer. But God will never send you to hell as a believer because you gave up. But yet the pressures of life, the enemies of life, often make people throw in the towel. And I get emails from people who ask a question about their adult children. I always tell them the same thing. I say, if they trusted Christ, they're a believer. That's what the Bible says. That's not me. That's the Word of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting Christ, everlasting life, period. Not, you know, has everlasting life with a little asterisk, and then you look at the bottom of your Bible and says, as long as you keep on persevering the rest of your life, if you give, give up too soon, you're going to hell. Never says that. So, the Bible is full of examples of people who gave up. Saul, he didn't die in the faith. He's in heaven today. John the Baptist died in a lonely prison cell questioning whether Jesus is even God. He's in heaven today. I don't recommend it. I don't recommend not persevering. That's why we're talking about perseverance. We want you to persevere. We want you to hang on and trust God in the midst of enemy attacks. But never let anybody tell you if you don't, you're going to hell. So our eternal salvation is not based on our ability to somehow live out our days in a godly fashion. First of all, who can do that anyway? 
I mean, people that say you have to do that, they've got sin in their life. They're still prideful and lustful and you know, contentious and angry and all the list, laundry list of sins there in Galatians 5. But somehow they're okay with that and they've persevered and they'll go to heaven. But somebody who has a life crisis that sadly causes them to throw up their hands and say enough, they assign that person to hell because they didn't persevere. It's unbiblical. Don't let anybody teach you. All right, three more real quick. Pray, persevere. Number three is patrol. Be alert. We see that Nehemiah did a great job setting watches. He was willing to confront the enemy when needed. He said, we set a watch against them day and night. He talked about how uh, you know, some worked at construction, but others held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore the armor. He said, as we read, uh, with one hand they worked at construction, and with another they held a weapon. So basically, Nehemiah had half the men work while the other half guarded with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Then the officers, the leaders uh, in Jerusalem, uh, who didn't necessarily have hands-on tasks, they were enlisted to stand behind the workers and kind of keep a lookout. Uh, some workers carried the bricks and mortar. They did so with one hand, holding a weapon with the other. And the masons themselves that were actually working with both hands on the wall, they had swords at their side, girded at their side. I mean, this work was well defended. They were on patrol. I think, sadly, many Christians don't do a good job keeping a lookout. Nehemiah stationed a trumpeter next to him, a man who would follow him everywhere he went and, and, and as Nehemiah patrolled the walls and supervised the work. And in case of an attack, that trumpeter would sound the trumpet. I mean, you couldn't send an alert. You know, they didn't have Google back then. So he would just blow the trumpet. And everybody would hear the trumpet. They would rally to that place of attack. You know, someone pointed out, for, based on this chapter, the people of Israel had a mind to work. We've already talked about that. A heart to pray. An eye to watch. And an ear to hear. They were on patrol. You know, the people worked diligently from early morning till nighttime. Those living outside the city didn't even return to their homes, as we read. Venturing outside Jerusalem at night could be dangerous. Through each night, some of the workers stood guard, knowing that Jerusalem was particularly vulnerable at night under cover of darkness. And he, he adds this little detail there at the end of chapter 4. They didn't even take off their clothes to clean up after work. They were working so hard. They kept a diligent watch at all times. I don't recommend that, by the way. If you're, if you're working hard all day and you end up a long day out on the property and you've got dirt, grime, and stuff, you go in and just lay down next to your wife in bed, I don't think it's going to go well. She's going to say, get out of here and hit the shower. Buddy. That's how diligent they were, and they were on patrol. So what does the New Testament tell us about the Christian life? Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Notice this next part. I bet you never connected this to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, or some of the other passages we looked at. Resist him steadfast in the faith. See, the Christian life always comes down to walking in the faith. You've already expressed faith for justification, eternal salvation. But we also are to live by faith, to walk in the faith. That's why Paul says, examine yourself. See how you're doing. Are you passing the test? Are you walking by faith? Are you living out the Christian life that you have? 
That's how we're to resist the devil. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Are you walking, standing, living, abiding in faith? That's, you know, when we get our eyes on what we can see, like the enemy, we're, we're doomed. We've got to stay fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, he's not here in bodily form right now, so how do we see him? By faith. James, the Lord's brother, says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. One of my favorite passages is First uh, Thess 5, uh, 5 and 6. I often inscribe this in, in my Spirit of the Antichrist books when I sign them. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us what? Watch and be sober. You'll have a far better chance at handling enemy attacks if you pray, persevere, and patrol. You're ready for them. They don't catch you off guard. You're anticipating because he is walking about like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy. And then number four is participate. We saw this a couple of sessions ago in chapter three, how Nehemiah and the people all worked together. Nehemiah verse, chapter four, verse 16 says the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. We talked when we were in chapter three about how in the body of Christ today, God has given some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. A lot of people forget that it's it's all of us together that are doing the work of the ministry. It's not just me or Pastor John or your pastor if you're visiting from out of town. We're all supposed to be doing this together. Uh, in fact, going back to Hebrews, Pastor I alluded to a bit ago, they were facing intense persecution. Many of them were throwing in the towel, abandoning the church because it, they were facing persecution. And the writer says, <clears throat> we need each other. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another. As the manner of some is, by the way. Some people have already given up. Stop going to church. Exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. See, there's going to come a time when we're going to be faced with persecution if the Lord doesn't come back soon, in America, to the extent that we can't go to church. Oh, by the way, that's already happened. The first time since Emperor Constantine in the 4th century, the church, not just in America, but across the globe, stopped worshiping Christ on Easter Sunday. It was the first Easter Sunday in 1,500 years, 1,400 years, churches were told you can't go to church. So they've already done a dry run, and, and if the Lord tarries his coming, we're going to see this again, and that's when we're going to need to do what? Participate together. Encourage one another to stir up love and good works. We need each other. And then finally, prepare. Prepare. I, I find it fascinating that uh, Nehemiah, I mean, we've been passionate about preparedness for years at our ministry. We've spoken at preparedness expos, preparedness conferences, tea party conferences, all kinds of places, done TV and radio shows about it. Uh, it's a biblical principle. Proverbs clearly says, a prudent man foresees the difficulties ahead and prepares for them. And a fool goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Well, Nehemiah was a prepper. I mean, he prepared. He, he, he knew that there might be an enemy. And let me think about this. We got this big wall and people are spread out. And if there's an attack in one place, you know, the enemy's probably going to find our weakest point with the fewest people. Or when the guardsmen are looking the other way, how can we rally the troops? Well, I'm going to make sure I'm ready. 
think ahead, I'm going to have a trumpeter right beside me, and whenever that enemy attacks, I'll blow that trumpet, and they'll be right there like light on rice, and we'll be able to defend ourselves. So prepare. Uh, you know, Proverbs has a lot to say about preparedness. The plans of the diligent lead to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty, surely to poverty, where the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is from the Lord. Sometimes people read this verse, and they say, they interpret it as if it's saying, you don't need to prepare, God's going to deliver you. No, it's a both and. It doesn't say don't prepare the horse for the day of battle. It just says, remember, ultimately, deliverance is of the Lord. Sometimes you don't win the battle. Many godly men and women have given the ultimate sacrifice throughout the centuries for their faith. God hasn't promised and guaranteed you that life's going to be a benefit. But he has told us to prepare. He doesn't want us to be easy targets, to give up, to throw in the towel. He wants us to, to be prepared. So how do you respond to your enemies? Pray, persevere, keep on keeping on, no matter how hard it gets. Patrol, be alert. Watch for the enemy attacks. Expect them. Number four, participate, work together. And number five, prepare. So what's the takeaway? Well, respond wisely. See, when the enemy attacks, don't react, respond. There's a subtle difference between the two. A reaction is typically involuntary. It's, it's visceral. It's just sort of what naturally comes in the flesh. You know, you get picked on, what do you do? You run over their bikes in the parking lot. That's, that's a reaction. A response is more calculated, more intentional, more prayerful. And if you follow Nehemiah's example here, when the enemy attacks, you'll respond wisely. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. We thank you for uh, just this great uh, historical account of Nehemiah and all that we can learn from it. Lord, again, we pray if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, that today, in simple childlike faith, they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, the one who paid our penalty on the cross, rose again, trusting in him as the only one who can give them eternal life. And for the rest of us who already know you, Lord, I pray that you strengthen our faith, help us to walk by faith and not by sight, and we, we pray that you would come soon uh, to rescue us from this present evil age. We pray this in Jesus' name.